0: Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On this second episode of Shoe Talk, I speak with Mike Fritton. Mike is a wealth of knowledge in the world of footwear design, and I really enjoyed talking to him about his current projects, his days uh, as a designer at Nike, and about his unique experience working with Bill Bowerman, who is the co-founder of Nike. He shared some great stories, and TFC is super excited about potentially working with Mike on future footwear projects. Had a great chat, hope you enjoy it. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by our biggest project to date at TFC, the TFC app. The app isn't ready yet for public download, but the team's been working really hard over the past few months to create what we consider to be the most awesome health experience available in an app. The app will be free for everyone, and based on your profile and the preferences that you select, we'll filter through all of our content, including videos, blogs, um, audio clips, podcasts, and new content that won't be available anywhere else. And it'll basically create a personalized education feed with the content types you enjoy most and the topics that you select to learn about. To stay updated on features we're working on and for public release date estimates, visit thefootcollective.com slash app. And we're gonna constantly be putting uh, updates out there so that people can stay um, stay on top of understanding what we're working on and the things that we're trying to accomplish. This episode is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. Our team at TFCHQ in Ottawa are big fans of coffee, and this Canadian company provides a unique subscription service that delivers you three great coffees to your door each month and also gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. Check out theroasterspack.com and use the code FOOT at checkout, and you'll get 7 bucks off your first month of any subscription, which starts at 27 Canadian a month, all in, including shipping and taxes, so it's a pretty solid deal. Last but not least, this episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear to and from seminars and workshops. They make super high-quality hard cases um, in Canada that can keep your electronics safe during travel. And you can check out their cases at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors. Hope you enjoyed this conversation between myself and Mike Ferton. It was a great chat, and I look forward to future episodes with him when we get back out to um, the West Coast uh, and Portland again. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet are the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body body conversation. Hey, folks, Nick here, back for another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On today's episode of Shoe Talk, my guest is Mike Fritton, Mike is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to footwear, uh, to footwear design, and also foot function. Um, He was formerly a designer with Nike, and Mike now works as a freelance designer from a studio in Portland, and hopefully will be someone that TFC can work alongside as we begin our journey to creating footwear. So Mike, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Um, And you know that, I feel like that intro was the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So maybe give us Um, a bit of a longer intro into, you know, how you got into this, what you started doing initially, uh, and kind of what you do now in terms of the Coles notes, and then we'll get into more stuff a bit later.
1: All right. Well, I first got into footwear with, uh, um, when I was at school at the university of Oregon and I was on the track team. Cool. Uh, I met Bill Bowerman, the co-founder of Nike. Yep. And, uh, so Bill was a coach when you were there? No, he was, he'd retired, um, about four years I think before when I before I started college okay and uh, I the first project he had me work on was a water fountain at the track and uh, from that he was kind of testing me to see if I had the right kind of work work (laughs) ethic and then he he pulled me into his uh, little workshop uh, in the medical center downtown in Eugene and then uh, from there we he always had a stream of athletes and doctors and coaches coming through the lab and we were always talking shoes and and trying to mostly help people with with injuries or problems okay so it's a problem solving yep and so i jumped into that and uh i also started making shoes for myself mm-hmm. and for you know about four or five years i was making shoes that i ran in was that out of necessity you're just like i want a better shoe so i'm going to tinker with it or uh it was a bit of a necessity i I ran the steeplechase and running through water jump uh, and uh okay two miles around the track barriers and water jump and the water the shoes would fill up with water and get really heavy so i was drilling holes in them and sewing really lightweight mesh so that the water could easily flow through the shoe okay um
0: so it was kind of by necessity you just wanted something that suited your function because that is a very unique function
1: yeah yeah um and then we, of uh, course, working with doctors, learned a lot about uh, what was going on with uh, the body related to, to feet. Um, at that time, um, the sort of the philosophy was uh, you need to control a foot. You need to do, you know, there was all this anti-pronation stuff going on. And, I feel like that hasn't changed that much yeah. <laughs>
0: when you look at the landscape
1: there. Yeah. And the, and it was influenced a lot by the doctors, uh, orthopedic doctors, and the um, orthopedic technicians that were okay. de- designing prosthetics and special devices for people that had disabilities. Mm-hmm. And th- their whole philosophy was, uh, you know, was control, especially mm-hmm. with any kind of injury that we had to cont- stabilize it and control the, mm-hmm. the foot, what, what it's doing. Um, uh, now i you know at this point i well over time i i got a different opinion to that and part of it was working in the powerman's lab but they let me go to the medical library mm-hmm. and i started reading these old journals and stuff on different studies that had been done around around footwear and, and feet mm-hmm. and they were saying that you know a lot of most of the injuries for knee and hip injuries were related back some back injuries were related to the european style of footwear mm-hmm. you know elevated heel and all the you know manipulating the toes mm-hmm. interesting and uh, so all that was in the literature and that went back to the early 30s even even they have references earlier than that mm-hmm. um, so it's a pretty well known that the shoes were not very good for your feet yeah
0: they were negatively affecting our, right. i think it's so crazy and, and almost a little bit arrogant to think that we know better than millions of years of evolution we yeah. know better than to allow this foot to do what it's supposed to we yeah. need to limit it or and obviously it all comes from good intention right like the yeah. ortho yeah. the, the orthopedic um you know uh people are, are trying to do what they think is helping the body but yeah. i just think they underestimate the complexity of the body and how everything ties in together
1: yeah and at, and at that time um you know the whole idea of what a running shoe should be was changing evolving quite a bit with mm-hmm. barman's barman's influence and other people um and when barman first met some of his first shoes he made he didn't have an elevated i mean had just a maybe a quarter inch heel small heel for mm-hmm. for the runners and uh then when the jogging boom started a lot of athletes were com- not athletes but just the average people coming around wanting to get in shape mm-hmm. were complaining that their calves and their achilles was hurting and so Barman took that information to the doctors he was working with. He had a committee of ten doctors, including the orthopedic technicians, and they, their conclusion was that hey, they they spent their whole life in dress shoes with a half-inch heel, yep. that they need more of a heel. So that's what Barman applied that to mm-hmm. his shoes. Um, but that wasn't his original path. You know, it was Got just you. a very minimal heel. Okay, I didn't know that. And and they were built for athletes, not for just the average jogger.
0: Yep. Um, so we used. We bumped up the heel more to cover up a problem that was created by footwear initially.
1: Yeah, rather, I mean, if you if you go back and think, well, a smarter thing might have been to say they need more, they need to develop flexibility before they start running, so that they can handle take the heels off of your everyday shoes exactly. Yeah, and uh, and build strength because they've lost a lot of strength by wearing those type of shoes.
0: Yep. Um, But it was a solution. It was an attempt at a solution, and I think oftentimes we come up with these um, solutions to problems which we don't know what the unforeseen consequences are going to be. And I think one of them was that we see now is, you know, they have the heel, they put the cushioning, the human body takes that into account in terms of the way we move. And now we're actually facilitating people impacting the ground in a very odd way. Um, But, okay, so that's where, and then, so we went, put a bit more of a heel. They kept, Bowerman was, so talk a bit about Bowerman, because I remember when we spoke last time, you, like, he sounded just like a master experimenter and a very logical thinker. Is that correct,
1: you say? Yeah, well, before I go into that, I just want to say once they elevated the heel, the, if you look at the original Cortez, the really yeah. narrow, actually before that, it was the ASIC um, shoe. It had a very narrow heel. Okay. On, foam. Yep. And then, uh, so, and the people were ro- basically rolling off of it with pronation issues. Mm-hmm. So they added a counter later on, then they added, started flurring the, the, the foam. To give it a bit more so stability. You, you see that in the LDV, which was kind of a follow-up to all that. Hmm. And uh, so it was, it was like about building more and more stability into the shoe. Yeah. It's kind of like that, kind of like a car. You have all the stability things. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep adding. But anyway, so that that um, was a band aid. Yep. To correct problems that related to what there what was going on. But um, regarding Bowerman, he his greatest strength as a coach i think was his uh his very keen sense of observation okay he could look at what athletes were doing and just see you know, just minute sort of detail and what how like if you're overstriding or you were moving your fingers wrong while you're running or you know just little details and he would, he would give you suggestions on these little things to correct hmm. that you never would have thought of you know it's like such a minor seem like such a minor thing but they're you might a, not even be aware of right and then but they make a big difference and hmm. So he was he was able to do that. Um, he was a great motivator, um, especially with men. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the women he tried to coach was sort of, yeah, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> just um, in his style of coaching, did well, he, he was t- he, he, well? he could be pretty tough, and okay. sometimes like you know some of the women would break down and start crying on the track, and he just couldn't deal yeah. with it. He could deal with that. Gotcha. Um, it, but still, someone so he did coach a few women in very mm-hmm. positive ways, you know, but. Uh,
0: I feel like some of those coaches, you know, this whole aspect of tough love in a coach, yeah. every coach I've ever had in sports, the best coaches were the ones that basically held me accountable and sometimes had to make you yeah, feel like shit because yeah. you were, and then you realize like, yeah, I'm slipping. I'm not. And so yeah. they pulled out of you what you didn't even know you had in you. And I think that's, yeah. you know, you ask people what their be- who their best coaches were. They're not their, their best friends. No, right. No. They're the best coach. Yeah. Well, you so, can say
1: the same thing with parents. You can't be yeah, the kid's right. best friend. <laughs> that's
0: especially relevant <laughs> yeah. these days.
1: Yeah.
0: Cool. Um, so you continued to work with Bowerman, and where did your journey go? And how did the fountain go, by the way?
1: Um, it, it, did, it did really well. It was it was a triangular fountain built on the edge of the track to uh, so athletes they didn't have to go under the bleachers to get a drink of water. It was gotcha. right there at the edge of the track. It was also designed with we different levels. It was designed so kids could get a drink because they're for the kids' meets. Cool. Um, so you passed that test, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually the last thing standing when they tore down Hayward Field. Gotcha which you know, Phil Knight just recently did that, yeah. tore, tore the whole place down. And I got a picture of it, all so this the last thing standing. So that's <laughs> that's awesome. Of, that's kind of cool.
0: We went to Nike campus yeah. actually a couple, couple days ago, and it's insane to see the scale that yeah. that whole place yeah. has, has manifested into and the new stuff they're adding. And it's, just, it's such a crazy thing to go there. You literally have to, like you rent bikes in a city to travel around, you got to yeah. rent a bike to travel around Nike campus because it's just so vast, and it's just yeah. crazy to see what that, and, and Nike hasn't been around for, in the grand scheme of things, Nike hasn't been around for that long, this, so to see what that ended up as and manifested as, based on what they've been doing, it was just very, very inspiring. But also just like a whole different level compared to what you think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, there's parts of that I that I really appreciated when I worked there. You know, I love the the energy around making product, and but the, the but it also creates a very complex political atmosphere. You yep. know, that that's hard to manage, mm-hmm. especially from on my where I'm at. You know, I don't. I don't deal with that that well I just want to stay away from it
0: yep um I feel like creatives and sales and marketing are just different planets yeah yeah and they have to speak together but also if you force one to intermingle with the other one you you take away the create the creative aspect if you get sucked into the marketing aspect I feel
1: right and if you I mean if you if you read the history of Mm Gore-Tex the Gore company yep you'll get a completely different perspective on what size means, yep. you know, because they had a limit to what size they, they could, would become. And if it became bigger than that, they'd split off into two different companies. Yeah, it's Dunbar's number. Two different divisions.
0: Because he limited, I, yeah. I, I think I, I read a story about Gore-Tex and how it, I yeah. think it was in maybe even Good to Great or One Book, and it basically yeah. said that they realized that once you get beyond a certain size, you lose the ability to actually behave right. and think like a team. So right. I think you only put like 150 parking spots and whenever they got done exactly. that, they opened up another one. Right, exactly. So, um, interesting. That
1: would be something that, that would be, I think, good for Nike to look at, but I don't, yeah. know, don't know if it will ever happen. But, uh, but not just Nike, there's all the you know, big companies that get too big and there. Yeah, you know,
0: I think that's just like the crux of yeah. any company that grows to a scale that was maybe unexpected or is just growing mm-hmm. quickly. It's like, How do you manage groups of people and still maintain uh, a tight knit, highly supportive team when you have 13,000 people working in one space? It's a challenge. Um, Cool. And then what was, okay. So um, we talked about Bowerman and and how long did you work with Bowerman for? And was there any like really memorable projects that you remember doing with him where he he just amazed you or he did interesting things that um, left an impression on you?
1: Well, I I worked with Bowerman for about 16 years and then uh wow. And we we went from being in the basement of the medical center to up to the third floor after about 3 or 4 years. Okay. Um and expanded and you know offered a lot more service to athletes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we also took on occasionally took on projects um like we took on a project for a kids kids and it was based on his what he was doing for his grandkids mm-hmm. at the time. Um And I ended up taking, that was my first shoe I took to Asia uh, when I was still with Bowerman. Cool. Um, We put that in line for a short time.
0: Now, when you say took it to Asia, explain what that
1: means. Um, Well, Bowerman wanted the shoe. It was basically a shoe someone who could put on with one hand. Okay. Because he thought, you know, when you have a a kid just trying to crawl all over you, you don't have two hands to put the shoes on. (laughs) So it was a little simple Velcro shoe that you could just slide on. And so, we got to bring back Velcro. Velcro yeah. is so,
0: so convenient and so yeah. good and we just, uh, I think it needs to make a comeback.
1: Yeah. And, and so he, he uh, got a hold of the guys in Beaverton and said, hey, I'm sending Mike over to Asia or to Korea to get the shoe made. So <laughs> nice. they, they were all on the, they, they didn't really appreciate it in some ways because it was basically and telling them they were going to do it gotcha. instead of just the normal process of development. Yep. So it was a little bit of a challenge. From that perspective but um, but he
0: still had enough pull uh, that yeah went at yeah. that point in time where he was like what i say goes
1: <laughs> well um and he, he was basically working through upper management at nike phil okay. Knight. phil Knight, and the, he didn't he wasn't working through through the normal channels through gotcha development so
0: cool he had kind of like a so like it was a top
1: down rather than you know bottom up type gotcha. thing which is some people don't appreciate that <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah fair enough so cool
1: um and I was able to go back to Exeter at that time, which where Nike had some uh, factories uh, making shoes here in the U.S.
0: Okay. Um, do you think they'll ever make shoes in the U.S. again?
1: Well, in a sense, they they are. Um, I mean, they have a facility in, in Beaverton where they make quite a few prototypes and samples. And, okay. Um, they also do build airbags that go. Most of the airbags that go into shoes are still built in. Oh, Okay. At I IHM, know Beaverton, they also do a lot of the sock production, which is or knit production, which mm-hmm. ends up going into the shoes. Hmm. I'm not sure what they're doing with that. I imagine they're probably shipping those to Asia and mm-hmm. having them assembled. Um, they get a break on the duty coming back because it
0: because it was originally made
1: partially made in the U.S.
0: I got, I got it. You wonder if they're doing that just for that or if they're yeah,
1: textile duty is usually pretty heavy. Uh, that's the the tariff you pay on the shoe coming back. Yep. But if it's made here, then you you eliminate that.
0: Because so. we have that in Canada, especially, you know, Canadian duties on footwear is twenty two and a half percent or yeah. so, yeah. Uh, depending which border officer, it yeah. seems, yeah. Uh, process it. But it's, it's a big obstacle. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, tariffs are there to protect the domestic industry. Yeah. And if you don't have a domestic manufacturing industry for footwear, why are you making everyone pay more for shoes? And I think yeah. it would be cool to see footwear start to finish manufactured domestically, like the saucer factory we went to. It's very cool to see that because you just don't, it's not something you commonly see. And it's kind of a unique way of making footwear that gives you more of a kind of a different perspective. When you look at it and you're like, this was made in the United States, it's made to a higher quality level and it's made simply, but it also serves its function. Um, I hope they do it eventually because it would be very interesting. Well,
1: that's, it's not, it wouldn't be the same picture. No, Um, no, no. It comes back. the, the The only way that we'll get it back is if it becomes more automated and mm-hmm. the knit stuff is a, is a step in that direction because mm-hmm. it's almost totally you know hands-free the yep. machine just pumps them out and, exactly um
0: you just hire computer programmers
1: yeah and you just find a way to attach the bottoms in a more robotic automated way and, and then you're 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 set you're good. you know that's not going to come back you are going to have you know hundreds of people working in a factory yeah. Yeah, that don't happen um
0: Well, let's talk about, so on the topic of the knit stuff, let's talk about the Nike Presto and what the motivation for that was and what the potential of, you know, we've talked a few times about like sizing footwear like you size socks and being able to have stretch built into footwear so that when you go buy a shoe, you basically buy, you know, small, medium, large, extra large and having three sizes or four sizes built into one size profile. And I think that is a very it's a very interesting concept in footwear if you're looking at it from the perspective of i want something to cover my foot to protect it but i also want something that moves with my foot instead of against it
1: yeah well if you look at shoe sizes um a sixth of an inch is a half a size okay so look at a ruler and see how it's minute that sixth of an inch and you can feel that difference yeah <laughs> yeah and that's because the shoe is static yeah it doesn't stretch
0: and move so you have no choice but to be very precise in how you fit it
1: well to some degree The and the, well, the other reality is your foot is not static
2: mm-hmm.
1: when it moves sure. it changes length it changes width
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you, ideally you'd want a shoe that does the same thing mm-hmm. and that's what the presto was about we designed the i, I worked on the upper part of it mm-hmm. um kevin hoffer was working on the bottom unit and the cage for it um and toby was 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 the sort of the, the guy that was um he 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 knew how to take the shoe and and shop it around you know to get it going mm-hmm. but also he 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 has a really keen understanding of the production and how the shoe should go together and oh cool and uh, so the three of us made a you know great team to to develop this idea but one time i was stitching the upper at my desk at a sewing machine at my desk and and, and, <laughs> nice. uh, and toby came in and we and we started trying it on without the bottom unit mm-hmm. and we go we, we both look at each other and we go wow this fits like a sock Cool. And go. And then we go. Why don't? What if we made the shoes size like socks? You know, small, medium, and large. Yeah. Why do we have to be. Why do we have to be all these? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sizes? Exactly. Think outside the box. So that that kind of started down that path, and then you know, brainstorming <laughs> with Kevin, we we even took it even further. You know, and uh, um, so the first season that came out, it was small, medium, and large. Cool. we had nine sizes, it was X X, small X X large, all that kind of stuff. Yep. I think there were nine sizes to fit everybody, and that's through the men's and women's categories. It was wow! was just you know, so, so the whole
0: spectrum. Into yeah. The, and yeah. do you think it could have been shrunken down into less than nine?
1: Well, it, it, it was actually didn't really. It wasn't. There was there was some zones in between those that weren't really fitting very well. Gotcha. Um. So because we we just had the upper was very dynamic and stretchy, but mm-hmm. the bottom unit wasn't. Gotcha. So we started brainstorming on ideas on how to make the bottom unit more dynamic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea was to, we start with nine and then the next season, you know, or two, every two years we, we go from nine to seven to five to three to one, <laughs> to one and that, that was that, in the that, conversation. That, that we called it, we called it a one size fits all. Wow. And that'd be incredible. That'd be you know, like, that's the moonshot. You're going yeah, for the moon. For sure. And so that was going to be the driver. But then at that time there were no internet sales. So once brand had started to get a feel of what was going on. They, mm-hmm. they didn't appreciate it because at that time they were selling these units of shoes to the stores. There were bell curve of all the sizes. Yep. And I, I can't remember what the exact number was. I'm maybe 50, 60 pairs or something. Okay. Um, and that was like one so size. The, the retailer branch. was on the hook to buy that, that unit of shoes. I understand. And then, uh, the, uh, ours was much smaller because we didn't have as many sizes. Yeah. So the retailers loved it yeah the public loved it'cause I just the whole, whole the whole thing just took off skyrocketed wow. you know into you know a huge business
0: and that was in the age where you couldn't tell the entire planet about it in one instagram post imagine well, that well they put a
1: lot of money marketing money, oh, money okay, okay it was it was huge with the amount of marketing they put into it, hmm. um, it what really, like But it what what really really well we when Toby was shopping the shoe around trying to get a, a categories to buy into it, nobody wanted it hmm. and the only way it happened was because he at least the, this my, uh, my, my understanding of it was that Toby uh, went to Mark Parker, who was the vice president of the FOER at the time, mm-hmm. and he tried it on and he, d- he immediately said, We're going to do this.
0: Cool. So, so it was by feeling it that. And he
1: was like a, you know, he, this was a size nine sample size and he was like a 11 or something, <laughs> <laughs> but he still got his foot in it. So, wow. Um, so it, he pushed it through and, and it, you know, became the, a big thing. Cool. And do you um, think
0: if they had you know, put more effort into designing the bottom to make it more adaptable and dynamic. It could have even turned into something totally different. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. And I've, I've played still, I, I currently, I still play with um, how to make, still how has to, a place how to go after that, that, that niche, or not niche. It's just that I think it's healthier. It's just better for your feet. If, the, sure. if the shoe functions more like the foot, it's dynamic. It, yep. it stretches and moves with the foot.
0: I think it's very interesting yeah. that you're, you know, like every time we've spoken together, your knowledge of the foot is like almost a predecessor to when we talk about footwear. And it's like, is that shared? You know, obviously you got that perspective when you were with Bowerman, where you were in the medical community, you were talking to doctors and you were working with athletes in the medical setting. Is that something shared by a lot of other footwear designers? Or are they more just industrial design and solving the problem of making a product with because it seems like there's a disconnect, right? Like, look at the shoes that are made today and look at how the foot moves something the left hand isn't talking to the right hand there and i think that's what makes you so unique
1: yeah well i think the the biggest problem with that especially today is is the digital world because a lot of designers have to sit behind their computers and design stuff all day Mm -hmm. they're not actually building anything by hand Mm -hmm. or
0: or even moving themselves
1: and and it's really and the typical way I see and it's, there's some 3D stuff in that world but a lot of it's just the flat kind of like a flat world mm-hmm. you know side view and bottom view. Mm-hmm. It's not the dynamic 360. Yeah. Um there's also this thing about div- dividing the shoe between the upper, midsole, outsole mm-hmm. and then about in some cases m- you know many more layers in between. Mm-hmm. Um which is not that's not like the foot. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, um uh, there's also the, the, a lot of designers, they, they look at, they, they, I think it's basically, I think, a mental picture you have of a shoe. Okay, the outsole has to have a tread pattern. Mm-hmm. The, the midsole has to you know, be certain dimension. Uh, the, the characteristics of those materials have to go through physical testing. You know, to, they have to have, you know, like you can't have rubber outsoles uh, that stretch. Mm-hmm. You can't have foam that stretches because it it's not going to fit into the normal characteristics that they test. So they have like you know, a
0: script in their head that they tr- that well, they most, think most, within.
1: Yeah, and most of the testing equipment they they have when they go through physical testing is there's from the automotive industry. Hmm. And so where they're testing tires and stuff. So <laughs> um, but so when I I talk to some design you know, when I've taught classes and talked to designers and they go, Well, that should make it stretch. you know, and they go, Well, they don't just don't get it and I go, Well, go to the hardware store or go to the grocery store. And find you know foam and rubber that stretches it's all over the place, yeah, <laughs> why don't you put that on the bottom, yeah, you know, so that it's going to move dynamically with the foot I mean you'd have to it's not just a free all it's going to stretch everywhere you yeah. you engineer it so that it's smart and you know moves with the, where the foot wants to move, yeah, and changes shape with the way the foot wants to change shape, but this, this it's not like it's rocket science, the materials' out there
0: hmm. Yeah. And I, I think if you were able to engineer um, like stretch zones, like the, the yeah. linearity of where something stretches so that it stretches in one plane, it does not stretch in the other. And you engineer that into a shoe so that you know exactly where you want there to be give based on how the foot yeah. functions and yeah. also how you can scale up sizing. It, it seems so simple in practice. What is the what do you think is the biggest limiting element you talked about how the way that shoes are designed and how they look at things from a 2d perspective do you think that's the biggest obstacle like why aren't we making shoes that let feet function like feet i i ask this question well, myself so much
1: yeah i think there's i think it's just the the mental what do you call what would you call it um there's a term um everybody i think has mental images kind of burned into the brain mm-hmm. that you so when you see something you recognize it as that particular type of object
0: yep. like a shoe it's like a schema you, you, yeah, you gravitate yeah. towards Yeah. And so, and I think that's
1: the biggest problem with designers is they get, Hmm. they've got that block in their head and they can't try to, to try to move away from it into something new is difficult.
0: So what do we have to do? We have to record videos of bare feet moving and make them watch it
1: for hours. Maybe. Yeah. But, um, but also measuring, you know, seeing where the, like that was where Bowman was so great at. He could look at that and just have a really keen observation about what was going on. Hmm. Oh, that toe moves, you know, a certain number of degrees to the left or whatever, you know, things like that. And, uh, I feel like part of that is just pattern recognition. Like he probably saw so
0: many athletes move throughout the course of his career that he's got this massive data set. You know, I always, with uh, like a knee injury, for example, one of my professors in school said that if you see a thousand horses, it's very easy to spot the zebra. So if you see a thousand people move, you can very easily spot nuanced changes in movement because you're like, okay, well, this doesn't fit into what I saw a thousand times. And I think in the world of footwear, it almost works the opposite way where you've seen so many shoes in terms of how we think of shoes right now you look at something weird and you're like well that doesn't fit when really it's like maybe i should look at that
1: right um so i one time i remember a number of uh basketball designers i was brainstorming with them and i go why don't you take these athletes over to the gym have them take their shoes off and play barefoot and watch what they're doing yes look at their natural range of motion what's going on there and then use that as your Inspirational, inspiration for design yeah. and they go what you can't do that you can't play basketball barefoot <laughs> and i go and are you kidding me <laughs> you know i mean go down i mean life i studied you know studied spanish and i spent time down in mexico and you see kids running around the, these playgrounds yeah. barefoot and the they're machine. playing basketball they're playing soccer yeah they're kicking the soccer ball you know halfway down the field you know you can do it <laughs>
0: we're just we're so yeah. culturally just brainwashed it's like you wear shoes it's what you do and and yeah. I know i sometimes told that to people it's like i had a patient once and he's like well what kind of basketball shoe should i wear and i look down i'm like wear those to play basketball next time he just had a normal casual shoe yeah and it was flexible and i was showing all the features and he's like are you sure like aren't i going to sprain my ankle he was in for an ankle sprain which i strongly believe was made worse by the fact that his basketball shoe had a huge stack on it yeah so it and, and it was so cushioned and so padded that i was like your brain doesn't even know when your ankle is going over because you have a massive air bubble or cushion under your foot so right. it's just this backwards. We we just have the wrong null hypothesis. Right. People are like, "Well, prove to me that barefoot's better than shoes." It's like, "Well, we've been barefoot for a long time. Prove to me shoes are better than barefoot, or at least show me a shoe that mimics what being right. barefoot does." Right. You know?
1: Well, all the studies I saw when I was working in Barrman Lab that from the medical library, mm-hmm. all when they go out and study these other cultures where they weren't where they were wearing either barefoot, going barefoot, or in simple sandals. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the knee and hip and back injuries yeah. that they saw in Western culture. Yeah, and it's obvious, and that's the why they that's why they attributed it to the shoes. Interesting. So the literature's there. Yeah, you, know, you just gotta just go dig it up, and you yeah. know, I've I've got copies of it here in my shop. <laughs>
0: yeah, know? yeah, and well, um, I'm going later today to talk to yeah. Ray McClanahan, and he, yeah. you know, the work of William Rossi, who was like a trailblazer in the world of yeah. like, let's study what other cultures do. You got his book there? <laughs>
2: that's awesome.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean let's you know let's study what cultures that don't wear shoes, what their feet look like. And he goes there and he's like this is what feet are supposed to look like. Our feet don't look like this. Right. Right. So it's just yeah, it's and I think if you're a footwear designer, yeah. obviously your perspective is one of I believe in footwear. Yeah. Right? And so I think that well, the, sometimes
1: the first the first design it. review I did, I went to at Nike, yeah. when I and uh, I'd never been in in, in the room when they're, you know, evaluating product or you know, visually looking at everything on the how wall. much would you
0: love to be in that room
1: and uh <laughs> i think parker was there and, and uh quite a few of the other you know designers and stuff but anyway they uh they were introducing a new airbag it was cool. like one of the more busy air, you know had more visible air mm-hmm. and everybody was seeing how great it was going to be for their their you know this is going to be the new thing that's going to make everything better for people you know and uh they, then somebody in the room asked me, "Well, what do you think about this?" Because I was just being quiet. I, had, I didn't know what you know. This was in my world. Yep. Um, and I go, "Well, you do know your shoes are bad for you." And I, <laughs> and the whole room went quiet. <laughs> like, that's how that's an easy way to quiet a room like that. And I, I tried to explain it. It's like you know this. You know, the, a lot of there's a lot of studies out there that show that you know wearing shoes is not healthy for your for yep. your body. Elevated, you know, you know um, that didn't go over so well. But no, you know, no. I
0: I wonder why. Yeah.
1: But, but but eventually you know we there was the company did make a shift when we started, when they started doing the free yeah the free took and off hugely yeah, yeah yeah so it wasn't you know it didn't fall on deaf ears mm-hmm. I think it slowly filtered in but and I was um, you know I
0: think the free kind of lost its way a little bit from what its original um, like I believe the original uh, inspiration for the free and you can correct me if you know different was uh, Vince Lanina or Vin Nina, yeah yeah. His athletes are running barefoot and the nike rep comes up he's like what are you doing like why why don't your athletes have shoes on he says well they just feel better and they run better when they don't have shoes on right so they tried to make a shoe uh and i was talking about this with aaron the other day they tried to make a shoe that essentially mimicked the feel of grass in terms of its cushioning profile and i think that initial inspiration is a beautiful is a beautiful story to guide better footwear yeah but then you increase the cushioning and you narrow the toe box and you increase the heel stack height and before you know it you have a shoe that's better, right? right. More flexible, right. but it's also clinging on to some of these old things like a narrow toe box and elevated yeah. heel that it's like yeah. you don't need those.
1: Yeah, well a lot of that um it wasn't just the the one voice I don't think. I mean I I no, think it was, I think not. it was a lot of voices that you know yeah. and it, plus in the market the the sort of the more the um, the more natural shaped shoes were starting to take hold. Mm-hmm. Um if you go, you even go back, even Bowerman would have people. He'd have people run barefoot in the infield, do strides barefoot hmm. on the grass. And uh, I, because I trained a bit with Bowerman during summers, and same, we'd take our shoes off and do our, our barefoot strides to to, to loo- let you know loosen the feet up. Um, if you go back to um, Arthur Lydiard, who trained his athletes, and in, in, uh, you know, he had a lot of athletes who run in, in the dunes barefoot, hmm. you know, for miles and miles
0: yeah strengthen up the feet build right, some robustness
1: right, right. so that's what's it, not a it wasn't a news story it's a, it's been around a long time um uh, probably forever yeah and, and but it's just uh people listening and, and paying attention
3: mm-hmm.
0: and i hope you know i didn't even know much about the nomenclature of the freeze in terms of the numbers but once i started looking into it you know i just if they make a free, nike Freeze 0.1 i will be the first one to say a lot of people should be wearing this type of shoe but why do you think that'll ever happen do you think they'll ever make a shoe that you consider to be one that is because they have all the resources they have all the access to materials they have all really smart brains do you think that they'll ever make a truly functional shoe that you can look at and say this is optimal foot protection do you think it'll ever happen
1: I think the public that's, is starting to tough. demand well, this more and more I think uh there's there's the there's a lot to that story, and I think uh, a lot of companies right today look more towards technology for the answer, mm-hmm. not what's the natural state, which yeah. is barefoot, you yeah. know, and looking how can you just try to be as, you know, neutral and, and let the foot do what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. Rather than that, they're looking for putting springs in shoes and mm-hmm. all, all kinds of super foams that they call them, but which is kind of garbage because if, if it was really truly super foam we'd be everybody be out running a four minute mile it's not happen- yeah. <laughs> it's not happening yeah exactly um you know so that's more of the trend i think and it's not yeah. just it's more of a fashion thing people mm-hmm. people think technology is cool yeah and they want technology in their shoes they want electronics in their shoes yeah which i think is completely garbage
0: i know it's bonkers and uh
1: so i, I think that's you know that's that's more of the the trend uh, and designers i think I think it's really cool
0: yeah you know and they want to do the newest and greatest right, thing right. And they want to and i think there's always going to be a place for that yeah. but i think as time goes on people become better informed like when i first started the foot collective instagram in 2015 i did i was like i don't think people give a shit about feet they don't want to learn about feet but i'm going to try it and get better yeah. at explaining foot health and the fact that over 100,000 people are following this profile that is mainly about foot health means people are hungry to understand about their feet to take accountability for some of their health and also to just understand their way out of injuries. Like they're, you know, our biggest thing at seminars is like, you can understand the basic functions of your body and how to prevent 90% of problems instead of dealing with the crazy complex issues that those problems create. And so I think, you know, I know that Nike has a team of people that basically scour the world of trends and look for what do people want and how do we explore creating something that there's a need for. And I think as people become better informed, it's not gonna be the most mainstream shoe, but if they if, if they can just create something and and allow people to understand that in order to use this, you have to also work on your feet, right? This is the best shoe right. for natural foot right. feet. Most people don't have natural feet anymore. So you have to give, and I think that's where Vibram got in trouble, right? They said, these are great shoes running them. And they didn't really say that, you know, for natural feet that have never worn shoes, these are great. But for the average person that has deconditioned feet and their feet have been on couches for 10 years, this Is probably not something you could do right away, and I think yeah. part of me thinks there's a bit of fear with some companies to make something truly minimal because they don't know what the response well, will that,
1: be. That goes back to the original what I said about Barman when he started putting more heel on the shoes, yeah, because he they they looked for that band aid. Well, it was an educated band aid, it was what doctors uh, you know, saw as would could be beneficial for these, yep. to keep them you know healthy. Uninjured, the, under, under, <laughs> instead yeah, of dealing with the problem, so they could continue to be active. And, yeah, but um, but there was also the other path where you could say, well, they need they need to they need strength and flexibility before they yeah. can do that.
0: They need to lengthen those tissues,
1: right? And that's the same. And as, and as you get older, I mean, it takes a little longer, mm-hmm. um, but it's. I think it's still doable. You know, you can. You see older people jump in yoga classes, and after sure. a few months, they're making progress. I had so. there was a
0: patient in our clinic in Ottawa. <laughs> He was 70 years old he was a lawyer he retired and he basically made a commitment to himself he's like i'm gonna make i made a pact with myself i want right. to be able to play with my grandchildren in five years right. so i'm gonna i retired i'm gonna do yoga every day twice a day right. and he went from the most inflexible man i've ever seen like he could hardly even do a squad and he, after a year he literally came into the clinic and did the just to show us and he did the splits yeah. and he's like this is the result of me working every day twice a day taking accountability for my body right it doesn't matter how old you are, your body changes every day. And I think it's just how much time are you willing to commit? And I think what a lot of people are finding is that they don't want to put in the work, but when they get to a point where they have no choice but to put in the work because they're not allowed to run anymore because their knees have a hole in them, then they're like, okay, I need, I need to change something. Right. And then it's just a matter of giving them a tool and giving them the education on how to make that change sustainably, instead of mm-hmm. just trying to do it quickly and then screwing yourself up even more.
1: Right, so. well, I, th- I think part of that story too is, uh, if you look at how you know we've adapted as uh, human beings, we're not really meant to be on level ground.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you go, yeah.
1: like what I've learned, I've learned this over the last three or four years, cause I've really gotten into trail, you know, hiking and stuff and backpacking. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of times I go out in the, in the spring and I'm on an uneven trail,
2: mm-hmm.
1: all these little muscles are, fi- are firing that I did, normally don't use on flat ground. Yep. And, and it's i'm sore for a few days but it's i'm not sore in a sense of injury it's like then i then i start to feel stronger
0: it's like you got to work out
1: yeah and there's all these little intrinsic muscles that that need to, that need to be stimulated mm-hmm. you know and i think especially my knees my knees feel a lot stronger over the last 3 years that i've been backpacking and, and hiking interesting before it was like every every time i moved there was pain you know yep. but now now that i have i feel like i have a lot more strength than my knees Uh, And again, it's from being on uneven ground. Yeah,
0: And And that's what we're supposed to be on. I agree 100%. We don't get enough of that variety, you know, terrain variety in terms of angle, but also texture. And it's one of those things where, like you said, if someone goes out and they're uninformed and they go out in a more minimal shoe where you don't have as much of a casting effect, they're like, wow, I really feel my ankles a lot. If you look at it from the perspective of that's a bad thing, I should go back to my big beefy footwear. It's very different than looking at it from the perspective of, this is sore because I've never actually used those muscles. And if I train them and work up, then right. I can build resilience and strength. And, and those are two different paths. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting the way people, our relationship with pain is very strange. We look at pain as a bad thing, not as something yeah. that requires adaptation. Yeah. Um, when I talk, talk
1: about people, that, when I, people have talked about going barefoot, you know, and they say, well, the surface is too hard, you know, yeah. like a like concrete and asphalt and stuff. I like, well, that's not the main, really the main issue. It's yes. the issue of it's flat. Yep. And you're always, every time you step, you're in the same groove mm-hmm. rather than this uneven undulating terrain where you're, where you're having to use all those little muscles. And yep.
0: you're right. And, and, I, uh, and what I always tell people, because everyone always says that we're not supposed yeah. to walk around on concrete. It's like, okay, there's two parts to this. My, my reply. Number one, we walked around on arid desert soil. That's yeah. pretty much concrete.
1: Well, yeah. If you think of go back and look at Bibi Bakila, who ran his first marathon, he runs in cobblestones barefoot. Yeah, there you go. You know, and he had he had, you know, grew up in an environment where he was spending more time barefoot. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's it's about developing strength. Yes, it's not about. And even your the fat pads in the in the feet, um, they're similar to your fat pads in that are in your hands, where they can they'll. And I've got this from the medical research I read. They become thicker and more robust through tactile stimulation through touch use. yeah not not because you overeat they just they become stronger just from the tactile huh. stimulation interesting and they're they're unique in that i don't i don't think the other fat pads in your body react the same way i think it's mostly just your feet and your in your hands
0: well from an evolution standpoint yeah. that adaptation makes a lot of sense and
1: if you don't use them you're wearing shoes that are comfortable all the time you mask that then those those fat pads atrophy and so it's uh, not
0: overuse. It's actually underuse.
1: Right. and So yeah. that's there's that issue. Um, and the other thing I tell people
0: with flat ground is when they say flat ground too hard, it's like the, the ground is always as hard as you interact with it. Yeah. So if you're soft with your ground impact, if your body knows how to right. interact right. smoothly with the ground, you can walk on granite and it yeah. actually can feel very soft if you know how to interact with the ground well. So there's there's these kind of other variables that people just don't think of. They look at it very one-dimensionally. It's like the ground is hard. Yeah. I shouldn't walk on it. But it's also, like you mentioned, you need the feedback. Your body adapts every day. And that that adaptation to what you expose it to, if you don't expose it to stuff, you're not gonna be ha- have very much capacity to expose it to very right, much stuff. Right. Um, and so we just have to always try and look back. It's like, if we live naturally, what would we be doing? How would we be doing it? And yeah. how different is what we're doing now from what we've adapted to doing? And it's easy to see through those mismatches, how we've gotten to this place of like, These, you know, domesticated zoo humans capable of very little and very fragile, whereas our ancestors were like these wild creatures that did everything, got hurt once in a while, but they also, their bodies were very good at healing. They slept, they eat real food. You know, it's this very, it's trying to marry those two. It's like, we're not saying you have to go back and live like a cave person, but let's, can we get a bit closer to that? Or can we just take away some of the stuff that we're causing problems in ourselves just because of the stuff we're wearing, like clothing or footwear? So,
1: yeah well Bar- barman one of the things that, cause i used to I, I, for a couple summers i actually worked out with a, a group of runners that were being trained by barman okay and so we i got a little bit of coaching from him um and then i'd also he'd take me out sometimes to help him coach athletes that he was working with
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's either timing or sometimes i was being the rabbit or whatever but um it was really common for him when people first came out to work with him um, a common sort of mistake not mistake but just a common uh f- thing he would try to he would try to ad- adjust was he would see them overstriding, and mm-hmm. um so overstriding.
0: Def- define overstriding for people that are listening that don't know what that is
1: well um
0: like landing too far in front of your body
1: yeah and it's saying he would look at he was looking at the angle of the hips you know the angle of the hips to the, to the angle of all the, the the alignment of the bones in the leg and stuff okay. that's how he would figure, figure it out and where the foot strike was occurring mm-hmm. um but if you if you over striding you're basically spending you know, wasting energy breaking yes and everybody you have a your first contact with the ground is, is you're stopping yourself from falling into the earth from yes. gravity so there's some breaking <laughs> But if you're too far in front of your your center of mass, you're killing your momentum. Yeah, you you're not you're slowing yourself down more than you necessary. So
0: he would tease that out. Yeah, right and, away.
1: And but when you're wearing shoes that have especially elevated heel and extra cushioning, it's promoting that. Well, you don't feel it as much. True. As you would if you were barefoot. Barefoot, you you wouldn't be landing heavy on your heel when you're running running fast. Yeah, it's you'd, self-limiting. You'd, it hurts. You <laughs> would, yeah, it would hurt like you know so you'd move more towards your forefoot
0: i always give people that analogy i say if you jumped off a three foot little barrier onto concrete yeah do you think you'd land on your heels and everyone immediately is like hell no obviously i wouldn't it's like well running is a series of single leg jumps why do we Mm -hmm. do it with running it's because we're given the luxury of doing it without the feedback coming into us right and even from efficiency standpoint like if 50 percent of the energy of running is that your elastics and your spring storing the energy and re-releasing it if you're heel striking, you're putting the brakes on, you're not using those elastic yeah. kind of resources. So, yeah. And what was his solution to that? So would he, how would he coach? Do you know how he would coach away from that overstriding?
1: Well, he just talked to the athlete. That was the main thing. You know, you you're just mentioned there's overstriding, shorten your stride up a bit. And uh, we played a lot with stride length because it's like even during a race, if you are if you want to accelerate, you don't lengthen your stride. You shorten it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that You increase your turnover. Right. And, and we'd experiment with that. We have you know, okay. This we'd have a. He always set up these race scenarios where okay, you're gonna get this point in the, tr- or on, the on the curve, you're gonna pass these guys. You're gonna do that by five quick short short strides hmm. to give you that burst. Interesting. You know, you have to practice it. It's not yeah. something you just you know. And, but a lot of athletes, especially at the down the last straightaway, where they're they're trying to get really fatigued, they're trying to sprint to the finish, they'll start to overstride because they'll, they'll start reaching instead of like yeah. shorting it up and trying yep. to go quicker and then you, then you're they're actually slowing down
0: did he talk about cadence much did he talk about counting cadence at all or was it more just by feel of, sh- of
1: just take quicker steps just quicker steps cool. i don't know if it's cadence um knee lift good knee lift um you know fall through with your with the way just the mechanics how mm-hmm. you're moving your arms and everybody was he everybody was different it wasn't mm-hmm. like Because he would look at each individual and coaches coached on an individual basis, not like a group basis. Like like you're all going to do this. It's like you specifically give people instructions on what to do.
0: And I think you know this whole thing about overstriding. I think when we spend so much time in hip flexion, we start to lose the ability to extend our hip. And so this whole pendulum effect of running, the pendulum essentially swings forward. So people are searching for their quads and searching for that forward direction of the pendulum because many people don't have access to the back part of the pendulum. Like if you can't extend your hip and use your glutes, you have no choice but to swing that pendulum forward and reach forward a lot more. Yeah. and i think you know one thing we coach in our seminars is form follows function unless you mobilize your hip and open up that roadblock yeah. it's very hard to actually start to run like a human's supposed to run and, and this controlled fall
1: yeah um, yeah
0: so interesting
1: yeah one of the exercises we did at oregon this is more with dellinger than bowerman but um that i think really helped with that was uh we would do exercises uh, kind of like a bounding type exercise going uphill okay so you really have to ex- exaggerate the knee lift and the arm Reach, you know using your arms mm-hmm. um to clear the ground but I'm not saying. reaching <laughs> out because you, you know you're you're, you're you're it's more about what's out the back end yep. you could go up the hill
0: and going up a hill mm-hmm. is much more um, posterior chain you use your butt way more you yeah. use your hips yeah. way more yeah so i think that's a a good way to pattern in using the posterior chain is putting yeah. someone in a situation where they have no choice but to yeah um cool and then these so so these days so we're in your studio in uh Portland, right beside the um Pendleton building and so what are the projects that are really getting you excited these days so I know you're uh, working on your own line of footwear and um, and you also do workshops so maybe talk about those two things and just you know what really gets you fired up these days in terms of getting excited about projects
1: okay I I teach uh, workshops occasionally and uh, um, I also teach teach workshops uh, I've gone to different companies and taught you know the design teams Mm -hmm. So like design uh, consulting work? Um, it's more, no, I basically I teach cause a lot of designers don't know how to, or don't know how to make a shoe. So I oh, teach okay. them some right. of the basic simple ways I use to make, to prototype because mm-hmm. I have really quick ways to prototype and some of them find it useful, but I think everybody learns something, something. from that and appreciates yep. the, the, how you construct a shoe.
0: Um, bringing 2d to 3d is probably yeah, yeah. a foreign area or just
1: having them sit down and use a sewing machine. They, they freak out, but they, yeah. <laughs> you get them passed through that. Yeah. a <laughs> so, um but um but i also teach uh, on an individual basis if if people like i've had um people that don't doing their own little startup they want to come yep. and do a workshop based on their particular shoe they're trying to develop mm-hmm.
0: so will they typically and, come here to portland and spend time yeah, with you yeah and how do they go, how do they contact you what's the best way to reach you for if someone out just there just through my web,
1: like, just through my website okay that's all the information's there Free tone uh, design yeah they look that up and oh. i'm on instagram uh Barely, but I'm I'm learning it. All right, you gotta but, start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the teaching part is fun, especially. I have like two basic, simple ways that I can teach people in a couple days. You cool. know, one's a more of a booty type construction, and the other is the handwoven. Cool. Um, and I, and I, it's based on the idea that you're creating it more around the foot than around the last. Mm-hmm. I, I do use last, but um, I first I begin with your feet. Measure, look at your feet, the shape of your feet, and try to um it to that Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i think that's it's important to develop that awareness realize that lasts are are not like feet they're different and and why they're different (laughs) yeah they're static so i teach that you know what's different about a last um i have some lasts that i've modified that are more like the feet Mm -hmm. but um again they're static forms and there's a lot of things that are built into them for manufacturing or for fashion Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with your feet and that actually cause problems
0: even the base shape of a last, yeah. like I've, yeah. you look at so many lasts and you're like the, okay, yes, they're static and they're just blocks, but there is a necessity for that to give a shoe shape. But it's also like the blocks, not even shaped like a foot. Like it comes to a point when the foot yeah. goes out and fans out. So it's like, it's no wonder we make shoes that don't like feet. The last we're molding yeah. the shoe around don't even look like feet in the first place.
1: Yeah. Well, the shape issue is, it's, uh, in a manufacturing setting. Yeah. There's probably an advantage to first shape because they're Kind of like you're forcing the material quickly to m- into a form yeah but in the way i teach people how to make shoes you don't really you don't even need a last you can build a, really you can build the shape without a last interesting um Just it's, based more on about, templates? it's more about um patterning you know okay. you're you're creating the pattern to whether it's springy materials or whatever to to have the form and shape to begin with hmm. and that's you know that's how a lot of shoe ancient shoes were built they, they, they didn't use last they Mm-hmm. They, you know, this is the way they constructed the materials yeah. to have form and shape. Um,
0: so in terms of um if someone comes in and they're like, I want to make a shoe for my foot. Yeah. Will you start overlaying materials on top of their foot to kind of get some shape in terms of the in terms of the
1: no, templates? No, I don't. I don't. There's uh, <laughs> that's it's, probably it's, a deep it's question. Actually, not. It's not. I don't go I don't go there. Um, um,
0: so it's based on measurements. You'll take key measurements of the foot and then use that to guide Just you? Just tracings, you know,
1: and okay. uh, manipulating those tracings a little bit because I, uh, from my experience, you mm-hmm. know, how, how you'd manipulate them to make them work. Gotcha. Um, it's not that complicated.
0: So what's the average amount of time that someone will come and do a workshop for you? A couple days, like you said, or will they come for a week? Uh, well,
1: I have a couple different styles of shoes, and I can teach each of those in a couple of days and you can, so you get the basic understanding and, and maybe if you're, if you're good with your hands, you can actually build something. <laughs> um, usually I teach a workshop for a week. So, and I'll have our people leave with something they can wear. Nice. Um, that's amazing. But, but then a skill where they can take it and refine it and do, you know, make something yeah. better as they go.
0: Yeah. That's like phase one of 20. Yeah. yeah. Where you give them the base seed knowledge that yeah. they can build on that. And yeah. Um, yeah. And this yeah. is, it's a very cool workshop. There's, books it's like a library shelves and it's a big open space and it's a very very cool creative space atmosphere you can tell that um probably some cool stuff happens in here yeah
1: and then i've got a couple projects that i'm gonna try to launch on my own um one is more of a like a casual shoe Mm -hmm. that's more of a natural shape um and then i because i'm next to pendleton i want to use some of their wool to create some Compelling looking stuff. Yeah. Just it, it's, it's right here next door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not and, hard. You don't have, it's like eight steps away. Right. <laughs> um, the other, the other one I I'm working on is based on, uh, requests I get from athletes. Uh, when I worked with Barman for 16 years, I, we'd customize things for athletes. And then when I, when I at Nike, occasionally I'd get a, an athlete that I wanted, I would, they would want me to work with and mm-hmm. I'd customize a shoe for them. Um, mm-hmm the last one was the fly ease where the that's what came of it was that zipper around the around it was for a kid that has cerebral palsy. So we developed mm-hmm. a basketball shoe for him, nice. but he needed an entry system that he could easily get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I get these requests for these kids that are like 17, size 17, 18 or even larger. They're super athletes, but mm-hmm. they can't find sh- shoes to compete in. And you're saying they're stuck basically wearing basketball shoes for track sports because yeah. that's all they can yeah. get. And so I want to develop that and and try to fit that because I I feel bad that I don't have – I haven't had things set up to help them, and I Mm -hmm. I want to do that. Nice. Um, And also I like the idea of that Presto idea, you know, where multi-size stuff, Mm -hmm. the stuff that moves with the foot more dynamically.
0: And so what's the Um, rate-limiting step there? Is it just nerding out more on the materials available to apply to the footwear, or is there – Is there a key element that key problem you haven't solved yet with being able to do that? Because I think that's very that's a genius way to make footwear. Like that would be a beautiful shoe that TFC could get behind. Is like a small, medium, large, extra large, made with good quality, like domestically. And we were talking about how you know technologizing the manufacturing process, where um, basically automating it with robots um, and having computer engineers be the people there instead of the manual laborers, and making something that's really good quality, very durable that functions to protect your foot very well. And I mean, you know, I buy, a lot of times I buy gloves. I buy protective safety gloves for inspiration yeah. because yeah. I find it very curious to see these ANSI level five cut resistance gloves that you can sharpen a knife and slice your hand. It doesn't do anything. And yet there, you know, there's a company called in Canada called Superior Glove. They make a hyper dexterity glove that has insane amounts of feel to it has a rubber coating which wouldn't be durable enough for ground interaction but i don't think it would be that hard to make a compound that would bump that durability up and allows an immense amount of dexterity even in your fingers despite being something that can protect your hand against lacerations if you cut it with glass so i find that very curious because if we can do it for a hand it's not that much of a stretch to do with the foot we just
1: have to the energy into it no the materials you don't have to invent new materials they're out there supply existing just go to go to the hardware store the (laughs) grocery store and you know find stretchy rubber and foam yeah you know start experimenting yeah Um, but i think it has to be specific to the you know i think different niches have different like if a trail shoe versus uh you know a track shoe versus it it, it needs to be specific Mm -hmm. and i've I've got bins full of stuff i've played with in that world you know Mm we're making really stretchy and dynamic to for different applications um, so it's you know i've been playing with it and but it's it's been a really i haven't put it out there like as a something i've I, you know tried to market on my for my on my own it's yeah. always been for other people developing ideas mm-hmm. um so i that's kind of where i would like to do some a small scale thing mm-hmm. where i'd market my own brand cool and uh so that's why you know you'll hopefully you'll see that stuff in the near future where through my website or through instagram where I'll, where I'll be putting stuff out there um but it'll be really small i'm not i'm not I have no illusions to try to become a any kind of a major player but i just want to do things specific for special needs awesome
0: and yeah i mean if you know if you put something small out there and it's a viable design that could be done at scale you yeah. know i think that's where you know our strength with the foot collective is to take a huge amount of people that are interested in this kind of stuff tell them what Awesome people like yourself are doing, and be able to leverage crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo to yeah. say, Hey, everyone, do you want one of these? Perfect. Let's get everyone to essentially pre sale and invest in making this a reality yeah. and do it at scale yeah. without having someone to be required to take massive risks in developing something at scale and it not selling. It's like, there's no risk, right? It's like your, 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 your main work is developing a prototype, showing people what this can do, what problem it solves in their life. Right. And then saying, we can do this if we get 20,000 people wanting a pair of these. Right. And right. you pull the trigger. And our, our, our role in that is to help
1: spread the awareness so that people are aware of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm excited to see what you come up yeah. with. Well, one little niche I have is where I, I do a lot of rowing on the river and mm-hmm. in, in racing shells like collegiate type row, you know, rowing boats. Yep. Um, we get in those boats, but there's, the shoes are only one size. <laughs> so we have really we have to figure out a way to get our feet in there.
0: Gotcha. Um, Surprised you're not the go-to guy in Portland to come to for that. Yeah,
1: so that's that's one where I'd, I'd like to do the, nice. the kind of presto Presto's, the multi-size shoe. You know, it may not even look like a shoe for that application. Yeah. Because I don't, you don't need to walk around them. They're they're, mount, they're mounted in the boat. Yeah, it's a purpose-built so, piece of footwear. Right, but it's multi-size. <laughs> you know, go down that path instead of this static thing that all, everybody sees as shoes being yeah and then and uh cool
0: you
3: know.
0: amazing well anyway thanks for having us letting us come into your space mike and taking the time to chat and uh, let everyone know so in turn what's your website what's your instagram handle um so that people can find you follow you see what you're doing in future because yeah. it sounds like you're getting ready to kind of start putting some stuff out into the world yeah. of social media so yeah. where can people find you
1: um, main you know it's Okay.
0: or uh, f r i t o n design.com right perfect and then uh,
1: that's the main main space and then uh, I'm on Instagram uh, freetondesign same perfect. thing so cool
0: awesome well thanks again Mike we look forward to seeing what you come up with and uh, yeah I'm sure you know I think Portland Seattle area is an area where there's a lot of stuff for us to be yeah. able to do so yeah. it'd be cool to come back when we come back every year have another chat re up on what you've been working on what you come out with and uh and we're here to help get the word out to the world about what you're doing so um thanks again for having us and uh i hope everyone enjoyed that episode i think mike is a um is a massive leader in terms of how much knowledge he has in his brain and um it sounds like you you're not at the end of your career you're in a new phase of your career where you're doing your own thing but it sounds like you have a lot of exciting ideas that you're just waiting to put out there so i'm stoked
1: yeah i'm looking forward to the next uh phase
2: (laughs) cool
0: cool awesome all right folks i hope you enjoyed that and we'll catch you next time